Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, Dr. Cubit. Thanks. We, uh, this one, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of some nutrition instead of just a casual interview. So um, today, I'd really like to discuss carb sensitivity. It's kind of um, been around in the horse world for a while, kind of a hot topic type of uh, issues that people like to discuss and, you know, trying to figure out if their horse has carb sensitivity or when they're, you know, looking at feeding them and things like that. So I wanted to start off today talking to you about, I mean, let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit. Um, and I mean, we can, we could get really, really deep into the weeds with some of this stuff. And so we're going to try to avoid that, but just to kind of give people some basic understanding of carb sensitivity, what it is and why they need to understand some of the basics of it to actually understand, you know, whether it's the hay that they're feeding or the concentrate or whatever, um, even their pasture, their pasture grass, you know, um, I think it's really important that we at least get, get through some of the basics, um, and give people that understanding. So tell me a little bit, what are carbs and how do horses digest these carbs? Wow. Well, that's, that's like a, a definitely a two-part question. Let's start with what are carbohydrates. And I think a lot of the, um, kind of appeal to this topic, why we've talked about it a lot is because, uh, the vast majority of our horses are living a lot longer. So they're, um, developing these issues, or we have a very um, large population of overweight horses. And we know just like in humans, certain types of carbohydrates and eating too many of them can be um, an issue. So let's go back to carbohydrates. And when we think about carbohydrates in, pe in people and horses, it's very, it's not very different, but there are some differences based on what horses can digest versus what people can digest. So really carbohydrates are important energy sources for horses. Um, they, the simplest carbohydrates, people may have heard terms like monosaccharide, disaccharide. So a monosaccharide, mono meaning one, mm -hmm. is also in our world simple, sometimes called simple sugars, okay. glucose, fructose, xylose, galactose. They would be considered monosaccharides. It's just one unit. Uh, another type of carbohydrate is a disaccharide. So di meaning two. It's got these two sugars bonded together. And they would be things like lactose, which you find in milk, mm -hmm. which is glucose and galactose combined together. Uh, sucrose, which is uh, table sugar, that's made of glucose and fructose bound together. So they're disaccharides. Mm -hmm. And then we have oligosaccharides. And this is getting a little bit more complex now. That's three to 200 units bonded together. And then polysaccharides, that's probably more of a term that we're familiar with, or complex carbohydrates. That is 200 to 2000 
units bonded together. Um, and they are things like starch is a, a complex carbohydrate or a polysaccharide. Um, and cellulose. Now, cellulose is a dietary fiber. So when we think about horse nutrition, we really break down carbohydrates into structural and non-structural carbohydrates. They may be terms that people have heard more. Um, when we look at equine literature, those structural carbohydrates are the fibers. Hemicellulose, lignin, pectins, and fructans are all structural. They're, they're fibrous carbohydrates. Those structural carbohydrates are what give the plant its structure. So as a plant grows taller and taller, it needs something to hold it up so that it doesn't just flop over. Right. And so that it makes sense. develops more of those fibrous carbohydrates. Those fibrous carbohydrates are going to be digested by the bacteria that live in the hindgut of the horse. This is where humans start to differentiate because we don't have a, an overly developed hindgut per mm -hmm. se, where we have a lot of microbial fermentation going on. Those ones are really, really important. The fibrous portion of the horse's diet is absolutely critical. The non-structural carbohydrates, which is more of our simple sugars, those are going to be more used for energy and they're going to be digested in the small intestine of the horse and they are not offering any structure to the plant, right? They're the energy storage unit. And as I mentioned, they're going to be digested or should be digested in the small intestine. And where we have some of our um, carbohydrate issues occurring is let's just say your pony gets into the feed room and eats a lot of sweet feed, which is high in sugars. Right then that's going to flow, that's going to overload the capacity for digestion in the small intestine where those sugars are meant to be digested by enzymes. That's going to go into the hindgut of the horse where all those bacteria and microbes live that are really supposed to just be breaking down fiber. And now they've got this an abundance of, of these sugars. Um, and that's where we can cause some, wreak some havoc. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So talk about, and this, and this gets even a little bit more simple, but talk about like the horse's stomach in general and how it kind of differentiates between, you know, some other species and even obviously humans. Well, let's expand that term out to not just the horse's stomach, but the horse's digestive system. Okay. Okay. So mm -hmm. we have the teeth, which are going to grind up the food, mix with saliva, and there's some enzymes in the saliva that are going to start to break down food. Then that food is going to go into the, into the stomach. It's going to get mixed with acid. That acid is going to continue, start to break, continue to break down this food because the goal is by the time we get to the absorption site, be it the small intestine or the hindgut, which is made up of the large intestine and the cecum, um, we need to get those food particles broken down enough so that then they can be absorbed. So we're, we're starting this breakdown process in the stomach. We, we're break using acid. And then we're going to flow through into the small intestine. The small intestine has, has enzymes that are going to break down the food. And let's, for example, say starch, uh, which is a complex carbohydrate or a polysaccharide. Um, it's very difficult to break down. And if you look at it under a microscope, it really has like a crystalline structure. So it's very tightly bound together. Mm -hmm. um, and there is an enzyme called amylase that is responsible for breaking 
down starch. We know that there's not a lot of amylase in the horse's small intestine because if we go back to the wild and think about the evolution of the horse, he's not really designed to eat a lot of grain or a lot of starch. Mm -hmm. Um, So he doesn't have a lot of amylase. So when we put starchy foods into the horse's diet because they're uh, used for quick release energy um, and high performance, then we need to make sure that the horse can actually digest them. So we need to break down that crystalline structure by processing those grains by either steam flaking the corn or rolling the barley. Oats is actually the only grain that you don't have to break down because it's got a fibrous seed coat. So it actually slows down the digestion anyway. So it allows that amylase more time to break it down before it passes on. So then kind of walking into, you know, sugar versus starches uh, to help give us a little bit better of an understanding on where you can find sugars and starches so is, is one more related to grasses or forages and one more related to grains and concentrates or how would you help yes someone understand no. that? Um, grasses, cool season grasses, which are the most typical grasses that we see in North America, cool season grasses, your timothies and fescues and orchard grass, uh, um, these are going to store their energy as sugar. Your warm season grasses... Bermuda, for example, teff, Mm -hmm. they're going to store their energy as starch. The other plants that store their energy as starch are legumes, Mm -hmm. um, as well as your cereal grain-based plants. They're going to store the starch in the actual cereal grain. Think about a legume, which is alfalfa or clover. The other difference between the two is the amount that a plant can actually store. So cool season grasses, they store their energy as sugar, but they're also what we call, they can continue to store that sugar as long as the environmental conditions are right. So we have enough sunlight, we have enough uh, fertilization in the soil, we have enough moisture, the temperature is correct. They will continue to store sugar. However, the legumes that store their energy as starch or warm season grasses that store their energy as starch, they're what we call self-limiting. There's only a certain amount of room to store that starch. And once it's full, we're not going to store any more starch until we start using that starch. So when does a plant use their energy? Uh, they use it when they grow at right. night. So Yeah. So then how do we measure sugar and starches? When we talk about that, like on feed labels and, you know, these are analytical. um, So the analytical terms that a lot of our listeners may have heard when we discuss the sugars, uh, um, simple sugars, which is ethanol soluble carbohydrates um, and ethanol soluble carbohydrates. It's literally just an analytical term, right? We use mm-hmm. ethanol and the carbohydrates. So simple sugars will be soluble in ethanol. Then we have another terminology called water soluble carbohydrates. Now, water soluble carbohydrates is actually just the combination of those simple sugars, those ethanol soluble carbohydrates, mm-hmm. and fructan. Remember, we talked about fructan earlier being um, a fibrous carbohydrate. And so, if we take those simple sugars and the fructan and we combine those together, 
we have water-soluble carbohydrates, and then we have starch um, as our three different analytical components that when we send a forage sample away to a forage testing laboratory, they're going to use analytical techniques Mm -hmm. to actually determine the amount of um, sugars, fructans, and starches. Okay. And so the ethanol soluble carbohydrates, that's commonly um, referred to as like ESC and water soluble carbohydrates are WSC. Yes. So how does that bring into the equation NSC or non-structural carbohydrates like you kind of So the combination of WSC and starch is what we consider non-structural carbohydrates. And that's the that's the unit that people are often talking about when we start looking at these different feeds and these different forages, the percent of NSC, people are always talking about those values, right? Um, Correct. And trying to identify, well, what is like that limiting number? What is, you know, the the maximum amount of NSC that we want to see in a feed product or in any certain type of hay if we have a horse that has some sort of disease that's related to carb sensitivity. Correct. And that, so if you look on a feed tag, the American Association of Feed Control Officers who kind of dictates how we label um, feed ingredients If you're going to put the carbohydrate fractions on the tag, uh, you have to lift it, list it as sugars, simple sugars, fructan, and starch. They're the the three components. Mm -hmm. But as far as nutritionists and veterinarians uh, diagnosing or directing people to uh, implement a certain feeding program for a horse that may have some issues mm-hmm. with these these carbohydrates, these non-structural carbohydrates. We've always kind of lumped it together as non-structural carbohydrates. Okay. Um, so that's that's and that a from. certain value. We should be feeding less than ten percent or less than twelve percent non-structural carbohydrates. So it can get a little confusing for people because they're hearing non-structural carbohydrates, they're hearing water-soluble carbohydrates, they're talking about low starch, and how does it all go together? And really, the best way to do it is take a pen and paper and just write it. Most of us are visual, visual learners. So if you just write it all down on paper, it's much easier to visualize how everything goes together Mm -hmm. versus trying to, in your head, think, oh, that goes there and that goes there Mm -hmm. and... The other thing I I would point out is, you know, I'm sure we'll get to talking about um, forages that are most appropriate for uh, horses that have these these sensitivities. But I want to point it out now and we'll come up to it again later. Alfalfa, for example. Alfalfa is commonly recommended as an ideal forage for horses that cannot consume large quantities of sugar and starch for a myriad of different reasons. And the reason why is, number one, alfalfa doesn't primarily store its energy as sugar. Mm-hmm. It's a legume, remember, so it's going to store it as starch. Mm-hmm. But also as a legume, it is going to store its self-limiting, so it can't store very much starch. Right. So that kind of the, the, the factors that go into why alfalfa um, is, is oftentimes lower in total non-structural carbohydrates and why veterinarians and nutritionists alike will recommend that to, to a lot of horses. 
Yeah. I mean, when you just explained how they are when alfalfa, you know, or clover, you know, the legumes you talked about being self-limiting like that, and they can only store a certain amount anyway, uh, makes a whole lot of sense now that you put it out there like that as to why that would be a recommended forage type. Excellent. That is always my goal to take something that is complicated and put it in a way that we can all understand. That's that's great. So let's dive into the term carb sensitivity. How would you define that? Really, carbohydrate sensitivity to me is an umbrella term. Uh, It's an umbrella term like uh, developmental orthopedic disease is an umbrella term when we're talking about growth problems in horses, right? It encompasses a whole slew of different disorders. So if, right. if we use a uh, developmental orthopedic disease, for example, more people are probably familiar with that. We're talking about um, physitis and osteochondrosis and wobbler syndrome. Any kind of growth disorder in a young growing foal is lumped under the heading of developmental orthopedic disease. If we switch gears and talk about carbohydrate sensitivities, then it's a whole slew of different disorders from insulin, from really obesity, insulin resistance, um, metabolic syndrome, which mm-hmm. is, a, again, a, a kind of an encompassing term, Cushing's disease, or otherwise correctly known as PPID. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of different disorders that come under this carbohydrate sensitivity. But what I want people to remember, because we kind of, this is one of the misnomers that we take from human nutrition. Right. You know, we always, with the best of intentions, take things we learn in human nutrition, and there's always some kind of fad diet in human nutrition. We, we know we've all seen the, the low-carbohydrate diet. Um, and so a lot of my clients will come to me and say, well, my horse has been diagnosed with problem X, And I've been told or I've read that he has to go on a very low carbohydrate diet, um, if not no carbohydrates. That's why we have to go back to the basics. And it was great that you asked the question, what is a carbohydrate first? Because remember, I broke it down into two major categories for horse owners, structural carbohydrates and non-structural carbohydrates. And the structural carbohydrates cannot be removed from the horse's diet. So there really isn't a way to have a low-carb horse diet. There is a way to have a low-sugar and starch diet, but there oh, yeah. is no low-carb low diet for horses. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I think the easiest way that people often understand things is putting them into terms with what you see in the human world, like you had mentioned, yeah. and low-carb has been, it seems like such a fad, I don't know, at least the last five to seven years maybe. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that realistically, we can't take the carbs out of a horse's diet because they need the structural carbohydrates, which is fiber. Mm -hmm. um, And they need that in their diet because that's what makes the horse's digestive system work and work properly. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. Do all horses... I, I, I know the answer to this question, but, you know, sometimes I'm just going to ask you questions, but do all horses need a low carb diet or now that you have told us low carb isn't really a good term to use for this or a low sugar starch diet? 
And is it okay for horses who don't have any of these diseases that you mentioned? Is it okay for them to limit their sugars and starches? I think it goes back to why do we feed these types of ingredients to horses to start with? Why do we feed cereal grains to horses or ingredients that are going to give them more um, faster absorbed, easily broken down energy sources? Because the word complex carbohydrate, which is what your fibers are, it's complex. There's 200 to 2,000 compounds all bound together but that's all got to get broken down to actually be utilized as glucose. So in order to break it down, the body takes a lot of time. We've got a lot of heat produced when those microbes are breaking down fiber. And it takes, you know, you can see food sit in the hindgut for 45 hours. So it takes a lot of time to break down that food. But the horse is a grazing animal. Um, but if we want to give horses much more easily digestible energy sources, and why would we need to do that? Uh, horses that go fast, anything that does anything with any speed, um, race horses, for example, um, barrel racing horses, anything that's going fast needs to be fed these more simple forms of carbohydrates that are going to be broken down quicker. Mm -hmm. And so... When we think about those particular horses, we absolutely need to feed a racehorse sugars and starches right? in order to give it the power to run fast. Does every horse need a high sugar and starch diet? No. Right. Um, if you've got a pleasure horse that you ride on weekends and you you know like to trail ride, I mean, he's not doing anything fast, then certainly no, he doesn't need a lot of sugars and starches. Um, but that being said, do you have to take sugars and starches out of every single horse's diet? No, we shouldn't be afraid of them. We just need to manage them correctly. And know when to use them. Correct. Yes, that makes sense. So when you have a horse that's a little bit more active, to be able to ensure that they're going to sustain that energy that they need to accomplish what they're doing, whether they're mm -hmm. racing or in endurance riding, or in, mm -hmm. I'm assuming anything like that, um, they need that extra energy and Absolutely. versus a horse that's kind of either just a hanging out kind of horse, grandkids horse. And we think horse. about the different types of energy sources that horses use. We use fibers, we use fats, and we use sugars, starches. Um, and those sugars and starches are going to go more towards that quick release, fast energy. Your fats are going to be uh, slow release, slow twitch muscle fibers, right? More like endurance. Mm -hmm. And your fibers are going to be also that more slow release energy source. So I can take a racehorse and I can feed him fats, high fat fiber diet. He's really healthy, but he doesn't have enough get up and go to fuel those fast twitch muscle fibers. So he's never going to win a race. I see. Um, that okay. being said, when you're adding them to the diet, you've got to do it safely. You've got to break them down. You've got to feed small meals often. So then going to kind of like taking a bit of an other direction with more of the diseases that are related to carb sensitivity. Are there certain types of equines that are more prone to developing any of these diseases? I mean, whether we kind of already talked about like lower activity versus higher activity, but 
I'm curious going into even further is there any research or anything showing that any particular breeds or types so like donkeys versus ponies versus absolutely we we know through years and years of research that there are animals that have what we call this thrifty genotype and we can trace it back to horses that have more of the pony breed they're either pony breeds or they have pony influence like the morgan horse Mm -hmm. um and those breeds of horse have this thrifty easy keeping genotype where it's like an air fern, right? You feel like oh, I didn't really feed it much and it's really fat. It's it's living on basically nothing. And if you go back, back, back in time and you look at where these animals evolved, they evolved on very sparse uh, forages that were probably very fibrous and not easy to break down. So their bodies compensated and they got very efficient at breaking down poor quality nutrients and keeping the horse alive. And then we put them into our environment where we're feeding them a lot more digestible nutrients and they just balloon. So yes, absolutely. Um, We've all had an easy keeper and those easy keepers tend to be more of those pony type breeds. Um, saddlebreds, for example, some Arabians even, even though in our minds we think of Arabians as being very lean and dense animals. But um, there are some Arabian bloodlines that can get very fat. So um, think about horses just like you think about people and they're very genetically diverse. Yeah. So we might have two Morgan horses and they look completely different and they respond completely different to um, to the foods that we give them. So treat your animal as an individual versus trying to lump it together. So if your horse tends to be an easy keeper, one of the other classic signs of an easy keeper that is probably going to be more at risk for these sugar issues is those horses that develop that crusty neck, mm. right? That crusty neck is a sure indicator of these um, these disorders. It's kind of like ob- abdominal fat in uh, humans. That abdominal fat is your risk increases more abdominal fat increases your risk for heart disease and diabetes and other issues. And we have kind of worked out that in horses, easy keepers that have that crusty neck, mm-hmm. that is a sure indicator that they're probably going to have some other sensitivities with high amounts of sugars and starches in their diet. One thing that um, we had come up with one of the webinars that we did on our carb sensitivity, um, one of the questions I kind of had sidelined in case it kind of came up in our conversation was, and I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about like manage feed management and things like that. But just since we're on the topic, uh, one of the questions was, how do I get rid of crusty neck in my insulin resistant mare? Yeah. And that's such a difficult one. Because it's a combination of exercise and feed management. Mm -hmm. And without, you can't do one without the other. You have to do both together. And so preventative medicine is always better than trying to fix the problem once you get it. So, you know, I'm saying, I'm here saying to people, you need to exercise your horse as well as maintain its diet. Well, what if the horse has really sore feet and he's so fat that he can't actually exercise? Yeah. That's the that's that is usually the point in the story that I become involved. 
that, you know, okay, we, we've spun out of control here. My veterinarian yeah. has taken blood tests and they've diagnosed the horse with some kind of um, sugar issue, whether it be laminitis or metabolic syndrome or Cushing's. And they've said, we need to get some body weight off them. We need to uh, address the cresty neck. And I come in and say, well, you got to exercise your horse as well as moderate their diet. And they're like, well, it can barely walk, let alone exercise. So so how do you accomplish that then? How do you, how does, how does a horse owner go about getting a horse to exercise? Are there any suggestions or tips or ideas? If, if money was no option and everything was perfect in the world, then we would use aqua therapies oh, where you're yeah. going to get horses to walk in water. Um, but, you know, again, a lot of these horses, when they get to this situation, are the 27-year-old pony that's been a staple in the riding pony and the kids love him to death. But, you know, money is an issue. It right. is. <laughs> well, horses, owning horses costs perfect, a lot of so. money. I mean, that's no news exactly. to anybody who owns but a they horse. They certainly it's, do. Yeah. So it becomes difficult. And that's why, uh, you know, my, my whole approach is... Um, you know, teaching people about the cresty neck, teaching people about other signs um, that they can look out for that are going to make them be more proactive versus reactive, right? We want to be, oh, he's starting to develop a little bit of a cresty neck. Maybe I should contact somebody um, about it's too bad. a feeding program before I get into that position. So yeah. hopefully people that are on the call, on the podcast that are listening, are there, are there, you know, cogs are ticking over and they're thinking, yeah, you know, my pony or my Morgan or Saddlebred or whatever, it, it, whichever horse it is, he's starting to have a little bit of a crusty neck. Why don't you get your, you know, your nutritionist, if you have one, um, contact Stanley that folks can, can work with me through Stanley. Um, and I can even just have a look at pictures of your horse right. and tell you whether you, you need to probably, you know, start to make a plan now. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think now that we've brought this up and have talked about it, um, cause sometimes, especially if you're a new horse owner or maybe Cresty Neck is not something you're familiar with, uh, we'll gather up some things to, put on our website to help people visually see what, what does that mean? What, I mean, you talk a bit, a little bit about what, but like you said, I don't know, I'm a visual person, I'm a visual learner. And so being able to see what a horse looks like that has that, I think will make it a little bit easier for somebody to be able to identify that in their own horse. If, if that is an issue. Absolutely. And you got to even, um, go into the performance world and this might strike a nerve with some and some may not like it, but there are certain uh, disciplines that seem to reward these horses for being overweight, that that is visually pleasing to the judges that the horse have this very rounded appearance. Mm. If you go into the higher levels of those disciplines, you'll find that those horses are really well muscled and have a beautiful top line from the correct exercise and nutrition program. Um, but you'll find that some people try to get there by just making the horse fat. In the wrong um, way. I see. And okay. so we really need to make sure that we as horse owners have the best intentions for our horses mm -hmm. and it's not always winning a blue ribbon it's about longevity and safety of our horses yes 
So aside from Cressy Neck, which you have mentioned is something that people can, it can help them identify if they're kind of getting to this point where, you know, they could be developing some sort of disease related to carb sensitivity. What other telltale signs are there for horse owners, especially, I mean, think about it from maybe a person that maybe like they've been getting into horses within the last five years or something like that. So maybe they're just a little bit new to the industry. What are some things besides crusty neck that they can look for that would be cue for them to be like, maybe I should call my veterinarian. And you know, when do I get my nutritionist involved? Things like that. So the crusty neck is one area of fat deposition that these animals will get, but there are also other random fat pads. They might get over the girth, over the tail head, um, in geldings around the sheath. You can get these random, um, really, um, it's, it's almost like cellulite. It's, uh, pockmarked um, fat pads in different areas on the horse. Mm -hmm. So if your horse has those, um, when it comes to something like Cushing's, we're really going into a whole nother disease state now. Cushing's we're going to notice. And and Cushing's, a horse that has Cushing's disease may not always have carbohydrate sensitivities or, or sugar sensitivities, but more often they go hand in hand. Um, those horses, anyone who's who's had a horse with Cushing's or PPID knows that uh, one of the telltale signs is they get really hairy and they won't shed their hair coat right? Uh, because there's actually a tumor on the pituitary gland interfering with the kind of signals that go from the outer environment to the animal to say, look, it's spring, we need to shed our hair coat. Right. They'll also have a decreased immune function. Some of the very early signs of Cushing's are tendon laxity. So maybe your horse is just getting really sore uh, limbs often, and it seems to be chronic and unexplainable. That can be an early sign of Cushing's as well. And then obviously, if you're at all concerned at your routine veterinary evaluation, you can just have them take a blood test and they'll look at their resting glucose and insulin levels. And that will be a, a huge sign for them as to whether um, the animals have any kind of insulin resistance. If there's insulin resistance, then we're going to have really high glucose levels in the blood as well as high insulin levels because there's nowhere for it to go. Mm -hmm. We kind of, one, one thing that I wanted to talk about, but I mean, you already mentioned a little bit was what can happen if one of these diseases goes undetected? If a horse owner is unfamiliar with any of these kind of signs or symptoms and their horse ends up getting one of these diseases. I mean, obviously at some point it something is going to look significantly wrong with a horse, but by the time you get the outward symptoms, the the severe outward symptoms of laminitis or Cushing's, um, we're really behind the eight ball at that point. You know, if you have the severe outward signs of laminitis, the horse is leaning back, they may have some hoof wall separation. Yeah. Um, they've got really sore feet. I've, their hoof wall can even, the hoof capsule can actually come off and yeah. your horse is literally just, so you, you you just do not want to get to that point. Horses with Cushing's disease, um, if it's not treated, I mean, they're just going to have really uh, terrible issues with top line, with immune function. They'll be, it's really uh, kind of probably a secondary disease that they would get due to a a poor immune function like a pneumonia or something that might end up killing them in the end. But 
that really long hair coat, poor, poor temperature regulation. Um, so we're, we're really don't want to get to a point where right. the symptoms are so bad that now we're finally just deciding we might do something because at that point it's very expensive. If you are putting off treating it because of the, of a financial situation, know that you long, the longer you get into it, the more expensive it's going it's, to be. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's obviously it's in people's best interest, especially as like new horse owners. Um, I know that we have a, a number of different, I guess, experience levels uh, that feed, you know, Stanley forage, but you, you have people that have been lifelong horse owners their whole lives. But there are a lot of people that really seem to be getting into, you know, wanting to learn, you know, how to ride horses and just that companionship that, you know, horses offer for people. But knowing that, I mean, obviously you want to take into account the expense that comes with owning a horse just in general for a healthy horse. Um, but then also just wanting to make sure that you're educating yourself and continually educating yourself to make sure that you can take care of your horse the best that you can, um, for in their best interest as well. So sure. that would all, you know, kind of be inclusive and trying to, and, and we're kind of mentioning more, uh, new horse owners, for example, you would be surprised the amount of calls I get from that. The conversation starts, I've had horses my whole life and I've never dealt with this. What yeah. do I do? Um, because our horses are living longer. So right, maybe right. maybe they've bred horses and been around broodmares and young horses and, and now they've got a horse with Cushings and they don't know what to do with right. it. So there well, there are yeah. horse people horse owners that have had horses for twenty, thirty years that uh this is a new new issue for them. So well, and um, I myself, I we had horses as a kid, and um, there was kind of a time period where we didn't, and now we have horses again in kind of like my older adult life, I guess, and they've they've been pretty low maintenance type of horses. So you know what I've known and what I've understood about any of these diseases has come through learning from you and from Doctor Duran. Um, and working with Stanley. And so, I mean, if we ended up getting a horse that had one of, one of those type of diseases or issues, it would be a totally new ball game for me as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important that your listeners, our listeners know that you are not out there alone and you do not have to come up with all of the answers yourself. Mm -hmm. We, Stanley, uh, employees, uh, Dr. Doran and myself and partners with Performance Horse Nutrition so that they can offer a resource mm -hmm. to their customers. And we are a resource if you want to call or text or email and get some professional advice you know, add another member to your team. We have veterinary, we have a veterinarian, we have a farrier. Um, we have somebody that does your horse's teeth. Some people will have an acupuncturist or a chiropractor for their horse. It's really important to have somebody well-versed in nutrition and, and nutrition for special needs animals um, that you can rely on, that you can trust. And when you work with Stanley, you have that resource available to you. Yeah. It's, it's so great that we have you guys on our team to be able to, to share with everyone. So um, it's nice to have you have you all with us. So 
this, I think, has been a really good conversation where we've, you know, broken down and talked about, you know, the very basics of what a carbohydrate is, where where it stems from and what it can do, you know, for a horse. Some of the diseases related to carb sensitivity, which Cushing's and laminitis, insulin resistant, things like that. So part two, we're going to get into another discussion that goes a little bit deeper into uh, strategies to kind of limit what, you know, non-structural carbohydrate intake and, you know, just feed tips. So if you have a horse that does have one of these diseases, what, what do we do? How do we feed them? So we're going to go ahead and chat a little bit more about that in the next episode. And that will be our part two. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, it's been good talking to you today, Dr. Cubit, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.